Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. When you hit 35 home runs with 142 RBI and bat 330 in your rookie season, that should come along with a ton of fanfare. When you follow that up with a sophomore season of 26 home runs, 113 RBI, and a 271 batting average, baseball fans should still take notice. In your third year, when you hit 42 home runs, drive in 162, and hit 343, everyone in the baseball world should know who you are. But that wasn't the case for Cleveland's Hal Trotsky. And next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to explore the career of one of baseball's most overlooked superstars, the career of the great Hal Trotsky. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. So glad you have joined me once again as we take a look back at the stars who have made the games we watch great. And today, a look back at a truly remarkable career. In fact, I think it's one of the most overlooked careers in the history of baseball, the career of Hal Trotsky. Sure, there are many baseball greats whose careers have been overlooked or forgotten, but the career of Trotsky was extraordinary, especially early on. When you compare his career to someone who is playing the game today, I think the guy you would look at first is Albert Pujols. Sure, Albert is going to wind up in Cooperstown, and his sustained greatness is crazy good. Albert's first three years, he averaged 38 home runs a season with 127 RBI and a batting average of 333. Trotsky was very similar. He averaged 34 home runs a year with 139 RBI and a batting average of 314. And virtually no one knew who he was. And here's why. During his heyday, the Indians were a second division team. They rarely contended for the pennant. And when you play on a second division team, when the likes of Lou Gehrig, Jimmy Fox, and Hank Greenberg are leading their teams to first place finishes, it's easy to get overlooked. And that's exactly what happened to Trotsky. So today, 
We're going to talk about the great career of Hal Trotsky, why and how he was overlooked, and the reasons why this career 302 hitter just couldn't make a name for himself. And joining us to talk about how will be William H. or Bill Johnson, who wrote the wonderful book, Hal Trotsky, A Baseball Biography. And Bill has a very unique connection to Hal. And we'll get into all of that in just a moment. Please let your fellow sports fans know about Sports Forgotten Heroes. And if you can, leave us a five-star rating wherever ratings are encouraged, like Apple Podcasts. Follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter, at SportsFHeroes. Look for the Sports Forgotten Heroes page on Facebook. Look for Sports Forgotten Heroes on Instagram. And check out SportsFH.com. There, we have an archive of all of our past episodes, information on all of our guests, links to more information about the forgotten stars we talk about, and it's where you can leave us a message. Suggest stars you'd like to learn more about or comment on the stars we've discussed. Again, that's sportsfh.com. So, Hal Trotsky. In his first two full seasons with the Indians, he played every inning of every game. In fact, over the course of his first five seasons, he missed just eight games. And while he was cranking out the home runs, racking up the runs batted in, and routinely hitting over 300, he was doing it all in relative obscurity. And I think one of the most amazing facts about his career is this. At a time when baseball played two All-Star games every season, Hal Trotsky was never named an All-Star. Now that's a severe injustice. And when you ask fans of any team who their greatest players were, most can rattle off a few. And Indians fans are no different. They'd probably include guys like Bob Feller and Herb Score. More recently, they might say Albert Bell or Manny Ramirez. But few, and I mean very few, would ever mention the name Hal Trotsky. So, let's get into the story of Hal Trotsky with Bill Johnson, the author of Hal Trotsky, a baseball biography. Bill, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. So glad you could join us. Well, thanks very much. I am delighted to be here. Awesome. Hey, I have a general question to start with. You know, I've been doing this podcast for about two and a half years now, and I've talked about so many forgotten or Unknown sports heroes, guys like Ed Delahanty or Bill Barilko, George Taliaferro, Lefty O'Doul. The list goes on and on and on. And what fascinates me about most of them is this. They're forgotten. That fans of the teams that they played for don't even know who they are. You've written about one of those guys, and before we get to the story of Hal Trotsky, just out of curiosity, why do you think that so many of these stars, and many of them were stars, are hardly remembered? Uh, that's, a, that's a wonderful question. And first, uh, just for Hal to be discussed in the same breath with Ed Delahanty or Lefty O'Doul, I know somewhere he's smiling and appreciates <laughs> the hat tip. Uh, because you're right, there is there's an odd anonymity conferred on some of these otherwise extraordinary talents. People that were they born and lived in another place in time uh, might have been dominated headlines, 
been the stars of the game, but for a variety of reasons, uh, they end up consigned basically to the back pages of the newspaper and thus the history books. Uh, Hal Trotsky is certainly that case because of when he played and where he played the American League of the 1930s. The ball is now alive, and you've got just at first base, you have Jimmy Fox, a guy named Lou Gehrig, and a guy <laughs> named Hank Greenberg, and they're all playing in the same position. I mean, the team and the his Indians team barely gets out of the lower division, right. the bottom four teams, his whole time there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it, he he certainly had to face, or his contemporaries were certainly no slouches. So what about Hal Trotsky? He put up some pretty hefty numbers for the Indians. Why do you think so few baseball fans, especially fans of the Indians, know about Hal? It's interesting. In 1969, he was actually named to the Indians all but first hundred year team um, when baseball did that. Uh, and so there was a time when he was still quite familiar to the Indians, but the modern the modern age is kind of forgotten. It's interesting because, as you point out, in his first three years, he drove in 400 runs. Had he done that today, <laughs> over 400 runs, had he done that today, he'd have been uh, already anointed and, and ticketed to Cooperstown. His best year was 1936. He hit 42 home runs, drove in 136 runs, led the American League in RBIs. And it's a record that even for Cleveland, and you say that's interesting you say that because Cleveland fans, there's only been one other Indian that's ever driven in more, and that's uh, – uh, Manny Ramirez. Wow. So one season. So it's still, and it's still number 20. If you consult baseball reference, one of those, it's still the 20th best RBI season in, in the game's history. Hmm. And yet who is he? That's, that's a great question. Now, most people I talk with for whatever reason, they learn about a forgotten hero and they want to tell their story. And a great example of that was a recent podcast I did on Hank O'Day. But for you, Hal Trotsky is a little different. Tell us about how you learned of Hal Trotsky. Well, yeah, I did. I did kind of back back my way into this one. I sort of married into part of the family. Um, <laughs> Hal Trotsky, and and we can get into his biography a little bit if you'd like. But he's he's from Iowa. Um, his family came over from the Bohemia, what's now Czechoslovakia, and uh, his uh, sister is my wife's grandmother. Uh, so he's her great uncle. And she grew up knowing who he was until he passed in 1979. And they, you know, she had a lot of great stories about him. She married me, unbeknownst to her, I was an avid, crazy baseball nut. <laughs> um, and over the next, now it did take me 20 some years to finally get all the family records together to the point where I could construct a, a narrative that I had some confidence in. But yeah, I, I kind of married into the family and thus I got some access to Information that I don't think I would have had access to otherwise. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, let's go back to the beginning. Where did Hal learn the game? He grew up on a small, uh, working dairy and agriculture farm in a tiny town called Norway, Iowa. Norway is actually, it's about 20 miles west of Cedar Rapids. More recently, you might have heard of it, the movie The Final Season with Sean Astin. It's about the Norway high school team that despite being, you know, there's only 600 people in town. Uh, and they yet they won 21 Iowa State or 20 state championships in Iowa for baseball. Wow. Um, yeah, it's an extraordinary baseball culture, but it really Cedar Rapids is the big town. And they had players like Bill Hofer come out in the 1890s for the Orioles, won, you know, 29, mm -hmm. 30 games. Um, but Hal Trotsky was the first guy out of Norway and in the he'd do chores. He was a his sisters played 
baseball women were very very uh welcome in the game at that point they had their own teams and they would in the garage or the barn excuse me uh they would hit things like you know take handles of farm implements and hit whatever they could hit and throw whatever they could throw and literally he kind of grew up with it as the youngest of four uh, siblings his father was not a baseball fan at all didn't really understand why his son his youngest son even cared or his daughters cared about it hmm. but that's it was a family affair and then he just gradually moved to town team baseball as a youth and then up to the high school and town team and then ultimately his professional career started mm-hmm. and and he was a pitcher was he not in high school he was a pitcher he grew up um playing a, a variety of positions of course a big tall left-handed uh guy like that although that's an interesting story that we'll get to that later, but uh, he started his high school heyday. He was really touted most as a pitcher. And in fact, that's what got a little bit of interest from the St. Louis Cardinals and, and a couple others showing up to see him play um, because he was just in the papers at the time, you know, the clo- colloquialisms like a snorting good fastball and unquote, <laughs> and things like that. But he was, a, he was a quite talented pitcher. He also had the ability to, uh, to hit. And, and when he hit, did, he had, if I read this correctly, quite the unique batting grip, uh, a batting <laughs> grip that would ultimately be changed. Well, if you think about it, and it makes sense, if you're growing up by your, you know, you're on a farm, you've got your sisters, if they're doing chores, you want to just hit something, you're going to throw up like a fungo in the air. And if you've never been shown how, you might have a cross-handed grip. He was actually originally would hit from the right side with his hands inverted, like take a left-handed grip on a bat and then go over to the right-handed batter's box. So that his uh, his right hand was on top and pulling the bat instead. And he did that all the way through high school. It wasn't until uh, he basically got into professional baseball. They turned him around and said, look, you're never going to succeed here if you <laughs> do it this way. So you've got to turn around and go. And left-handed, he could hit the, the eyesight, the whatever cognitive processing goes into making a hitter. He had it. I would almost think that you could get hurt hitting the Absolutely. ball that way. Absolutely. I, it, it baffles me. I would have loved, obviously, a lot of things I would have loved to have seen, but that's certainly one of them. Sure. Now, you mentioned the Cardinals, and he was really good. And there were more than just the Cardinals that were scouting him, including the Philadelphia Athletics and Connie Mack. In fact, I believe Mack had real interest in him, but so did the Indians. How did he wind up with the Indians and not the Athletics? Well, it's, it's, it's again, the uh, Cardinals were because they're the region, they were the regional team and they had the scouting budgets back then might be $50,000 for all year for the whole year for travel and, and maybe some more money to sign players, but it wasn't much. So you were limited to what you heard from who you knew. The scout from the Cardinals came up and started watched a couple of games and then Connie Mack and Cy Slavnica both found out about it. Connie Mack found out about it. Uh, and, and after Hal had the Cardinal scouted approached Hal and then Sly Slapnica had approached Hal, but then Hal didn't know what to do. So the only guy he knew how to do to talk to was uh, was a former uh, big leaguer who lived 20 miles away in Vinton. And so he went up and spoke with him and he said, do nothing. Let me get a hold of Connie Mack because I'm sure he'd be interested in you. And uh, and Hal came home and Slapnica from the Indians was sitting at his table with a contract. <laughs> and the, so Ed Hal said, I signed the first contract. They stuck, they actually stuck under my nose. Three days later, he, he got a contract from Connie Mack and the A's. 
and, and Mac offered him basically the same deal the Indians had. The interesting thing about the Indians deal, and I found this out uh, talking to scouts and then doing some reading, is that uh, or Cy Slapnick, the scout that signed Hal, he was a Cedar Rapidian. He had played a little bit, but he really made his hay as a scout and then an executive. But he was really – he was quite notorious for giving out not unsigned contracts. So he would sign a player – and then the player might show up, and then if he didn't work out, the team wouldn't even owe that player a ticket home because they didn't have a valid binding contract. Wow. Um, so, but now fortunately, Slavnica, being an Iowan, being a Cedar Rapidian, said, "Hey, we'll start you right here in Cedar Rapids, twenty minutes away, thirty minutes back then." And so, so there was very low risk. But it is kind of funny how that all fell together. And then Connie Mack, after how returned the contract, saying, "Hey, I already signed," he sent him a really nice note. And and Connie Mack was actually one of his biggest, most vocal proponents through his entire the rest of his career. Wow, that's awesome. Let's again go back to the beginning. What was life like for Hal Trotsky on the farm growing up? Oh my gosh. You know, it's funny uh, anymore. I, I, I admire those people every day, the older I get because of the weather extremes, the work, the load, he was a farmer's kid. Um, so every morning you're up doing the chores and the chores on a farm, everything he's doing divided by the people in the, in the household. And that's how work gets done. And so his chores were his share of the farm work. So he'd be up milking the cows or whatever, cleaning things, lifting things, fixing things. Then he goes off to school. Then he comes home for chores and then it's time for baseball or if he's got a game or something his dad would let John would let him maybe get to his chores later hmm. but it was it was a, it was an unending uh never stopping metronome of the cadence was set by chores by the seasons by the farm duties and baseball was something he had to fit in around that you know rain shine winter can be 20 below summer can be 80 with uh 90% humidity still the same jobs need to be done every day it was a really difficult life what about family life? I mean, how did the family get along and all that? Oh, it was extraordinarily close, really tightly knit. Um, Eastern Iowa is a strong strain of what, whatever that Slavic Catholicism came over. And so family was a very big deal. And they kind of everyone in the community was pretty similar. In fact, the town of Norway was named by a guy who had been kicked out of Norway for marrying two women. But he moved to Iowa, found a third wife and uh, bought, got, the, got his land grant, his 162 acres. Um, and so everyone that moved there basically had the same, uh, I guess, uh, moral moral code or, or religious mm -hmm. code or whatever. Mm -hmm. So families were big. Families were very important. He was how was very close with his brother, his two sisters, his mother and father. You know, normal squabbles, but it was a very tight knit family. Mm -hmm. Did working on the farm help him at all develop into a baseball player? I mean, like, did it add strength? Where the where the was there was there anything that he did in particular? on the farm that helped him to develop as a baseball player? That's interesting because I, I would, you know, intuitively I would say yes, and I can, I'm sure it couldn't have hurt him. However, having talked to players that, that were with him and people that knew him growing up, the same farmer's kids from different farms doing the same kinds of chores, they, a couple of them pointed out, hey, we never got that big and strong. So there was a certain uh, genetic component of him being just an extraordinarily gifted athletic human being who was made better by the discipline, the crucible that was farm work. Mm -hmm. um, if I talked to his son, Hal Jr., who played a couple of games for the White Sox mm -hmm. later on, but I talked to him before he did. Even at age 80, he was still a large, charismatic man when he walked into a room. There was just something, a physical presence. And apparently, by all accounts, his father, Hal Sr., had this in spades. Hmm. Interesting. So he goes on to the minor leagues to start his career, and if I follow correctly, as a pitcher. 
And this yes. is when it was suggested that he do change his grip as a batter and move from the right side of the plate to the left. Can you elaborate on what happened and why the move? Was he not making it as a pitcher? Was there more potential as a hitter? What happened here while he was playing, ironically, for Cedar Rapids? Absolutely. So to set the environment, the stage a little bit, in minor leagues then were very similar to the minor leagues now in that every day is an evaluation. It's a, it's an exam for every player every day. Cy Slavnica, the scout that ultimately would become the what we call the general manager of the Indians, was still the lead scout, the kind of the Indians representative in the area. And so he was checking on his projects, like all the players he had signed and sent to Cedar Rapids. Cedar Rapids was met, managed by a guy named Paul Spira, who had been a, a firecracker, you know, that kind of player, um, very aggressive, cared about winning. Talon signed as a pitcher, and he threw a couple of games, um, actually had a couple of nice outings, and then he got rocked a couple of times. The uh, Gilkerson Colored Giants came to town, um, and they apparently beat him up pretty badly for a couple of innings. And these were minor league or barnstorming uh, Negro American, Negro National League players. Mm -hmm. So they were, they were the closest thing to major leaguers he played against. And as a pitcher, he didn't hold up very well. Um, but it took very little time for Cy Slatnick to look at him and say, hey, uh, you've got tremendous opportunity here. Why don't you just keep your grip, switch batter's boxes, move from the right box to the left, and try hitting there? And it was it was like a light switch flicked. Hmm. All of a sudden, what it became line drives became fly ball line drives. Um, his power went up, and and basically, uh, Slavnica said, "I don't made to the effect of I don't care where you play. We'll try you first base, but you're not going to pitch anymore. You're done pitching for." this Indians organization for Cedar Rapids. You are now a hitter. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me about his, his exploits at learning how to play first base. Oh gosh. Well, now until maybe the last, Oh, last couple of years of the thirties, most of that decade uh, from the time he signed until his last couple of years with Cleveland, he was, he was kind of an iron glove. He led the American league in errors at first base a couple of years. Mm -hmm. um, he had a very difficult uh, assimilation because he'd really never grown up. He'd played outfield uh, as a kid when he was playing, not pitching, and he but he really assumed he was going to be a pitcher. So becoming a first baseman um, requires the deft footwork, the anticipation, those kinds of things. Um, he, he he labored with it. Ultimately, uh, a couple of years down the road, when he was up with the Indians, he got with Steve O'Neill, who was by then coaching and then soon managing the team. And that was when he really refined his technique. But he was a rough feeler all through his minor league career. And it wasn't really till about halfway through his major league career that he became comfortable and competent, I'd say, with the glove. Why first base and not the outfield? Is there anything to that? Um, from what I can gather, the Indians had no need for him in the outfield. They had they had a tremendous group of uh, players. They had a local Cleveland kid, Joe Vosmick. They had a Hall of Famer, Earl Averill. They had a, a guy cycling through the outfield positions, and they had no problems there offensively or defensively. But at first base, and this was before Hal was called all the way up to Cleveland, um, they had had a run through a series of poor first basemen. Uh, mm -hmm. The guy that Hal ultimately replaced in 1933 was a guy named Harley Harley Boss, and he was one of he was a, he had I think he was a 235 hitter, decent glove, 
but the Indians were getting nothing out of him offensively. And this is a team that had Wes Farrell and a lot of good players and expected to do better, but they had kind of this donut hole at first base. And and Hal was kind of a natural fit. And they, I believe, based on what I've read and seen, uh, that they were starting to look at that even as they were moving him up the minors. Mm-hmm. So in 1931, he plays for Cedar Rapids in Class D ball. He advances pretty quickly, and by the end of the 1933 season, he's called up to the majors by the Indians you know, for the proverbial cup of coffee, and he impressed everyone. In 11 games, he hit 295 with a homer and knocked in eight. What convinced management that he was their guy? Well, I think at the, the first couple of games he played, he had uh, it took him a while to even get his first hit. He was over, he, he admitted he was overmatched at first. But once he became, he got his first homer off Gordon Rhodes in Boston. Um, started to, things came together. He like you like you alluded to. He actually was able to produce some con- powerful contact, hit a few doubles, um, and the Indians really. The Indians, I, I'm confident, and uh, I've, again, a couple of the players I talked to back in the '90s, they really didn't have anybody else. I mean, he mm-hmm. was the best option at first, mm-hmm. and it was a very young team. I mean, his infield, the average age was somewhere around 21 and a half. He was, I think, the old kid or the old guy at 21. There might have been a 22-year-old uh, Bozberger or Oral Hillebrand at short, but they was a really young infield. And so the Indians, they took a chance because they really didn't have another option. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that first full year. 1934, he didn't disappoint. In fact, (laughs) I think if there was such a thing as Rookie of the Year, I don't think it'd be far-fetched that Hal Trotsky would have won. He finished seventh in the MVP voting. He played every inning of every game in his rookie season, and as you had mentioned earlier, he hit 330 with 35 home runs, 142 ribbies, 45 doubles, and nine triples. I mean, wow, what a season. So in a biography that you wrote for Sabre, you said he was just short of spectacular. Now, I got to ask, were you being sarcastic here? What wasn't spectacular about those numbers? Well, I think that that I know exactly what to what you refer. Um, and I think it's in the I put it in the book too. Um, it is, it it was the frustration was. I mean, this was a time in the American League when Lou Gehrig won the Triple Crown and didn't win the MVP. I believe Mickey Cochran <laughs> won it that year. It was a time when a, a stellar performance was almost necessary to stay in the game. Even so, Hal's rookie season was like like you said, extraordinary. And when you just say those those numbers back and forth, he'll always pop up when they have it in the Major League Baseball. If you're reading the Athletic or New York Times, when there's a spectacular rookie up today, like when Mike Trout came up, they start mm-hmm. to map out who are the best rookie seasons, and Hal always pops up because of those numbers you just rattled off. Um, they, he he really was everything that. No one saw him coming, really, except mm-hmm. maybe Cy Slavnica. But it was a, it was it was a great performance, and yet he still number four on the <laughs> the food chain right. in American League first baseman, despite the fact that he shows such promise at such a very young age. Yeah, how good was he? Cleveland must have thought it had found a cornerstone, if not the cornerstone, to its team. I mean, how Trotsky was good. He was the real deal, wasn't he? Oh, absolutely. He was the combination. He lacked a little speed. He was not a base stealer. But once he fixed his glove, 
He repaired those holes in it. Um, he, he was everything they could have asked for offensively. He delivered power. He delivered average. He would hit in key spots. He was a left-handed bat to break up a right-handed lineup. All the things you think about today with platoon advantage. He, he, there was really never a question with Hal. He was always the most feared here. Even with Earl Aver on the team, a future Hall of Famer, Trotsky was one of the guys that was always accounted for. And other teams would say, the Yankees, when they would come to town, they were looking specifically at Hal Trotsky. Lefty Gomez um, and Hal's nephew, uh, Pinky Primer, is back in Iowa. They Lefty Gomez would come out to Hal's uh, high school uh, clinics after everyone, they all retired back in the sixties. And he would tell people, he was very clear telling people that Hal Trotsky was the guy that they talked about in the Yankee clubhouse, even more than Averill. And Averill was a phenomenal hitter, again, a hall of famer, but Hal was a young Hal Trotsky. Um, he was, he was something that they really had to deal with almost as a separate part of that team. Hmm. And yet the obscurity, it still baffles me. I mean, like you just said, these these numbers are just amazing. I mean, if you had a rookie, the only, I mean, right now we're watching Pete Alonzo for the New York Mets. You know, he's whacking the heck out of the ball, but he's not hitting 330. I asked you earlier, and you referred to it a couple of times, even just now, why he's not better remembered. I mean, he's playing at the same time as Gehrig. Babe Ruth was still around. Mickey Cochran, Jimmy Fox, Hank Greenberg. I mean, there was stiff competition, and those guys were playing for perennial winners. Cleveland wasn't a perennial winner. How difficult was it to make a name for yourself back then? Oh my gosh, absolutely. I mean, you look at just look at like you said, look at the Yankees. They they were about ready to embark on that 1936 to 39 mini dynasty of four years where they were maybe the best team in history, arguably. But Jimmy Fox, he was a guy that like Lefty Gomez said, had muscles on muscles, and it was always a threat every year, year in and year out. They always wondered, is he going to this year with, with Philly and with Boston? Is he going to break Ruth's record this year? Because he was the one guy that they all thought could do it. And then in thirty in thirty eight, Hank Greenberg is the guy that actually gets closest. Mm-hmm. He was a, he was an incredible player, and but it, and even he, I think. I think because of Gehrig and Fox, I think I would say those were the two in the press. All the readings I've done, if you did a name count, um, Gehrig would be obviously the most among first basemen in the American League. And then Fox and then not a distant third, but a distinguished third would be Greenberg. And then a way distant fourth would be Trotsky. Um, And there are some other players like later on with the White Sox, Zeke Manura, a first baseman who you might have heard of him, but most people never have. Um, He was a wonderful player for Chicago and no one knows who he is. But it was such a hard time to break out, to get above the grass level because the grass was so tall. It was some of the very finest players in the history of the game. And I know it frustrated Hal for the all-star things, and and we may get to that in a little bit, but that, that did frustrate him a little bit. He was very circumspect about saying anything in public. But uh, it did kind of rankle him even after the 1936 season. And yet it's really hard to argue with this. If you're chick picking Fox Greenberg or Gehrig ahead of you, eh, it's tough to call favoritism or suppression or anything like that. Did defense, did his defense play any role in that? It did, I think, to a degree. Although if you look at the numbers, um, Hank Greenberg was not a gifted gloveman, despite so there's he's got a better reputation, but the, if you go back and look at the error numbers, he may be not as good as people think, but he was a, even more prolific a couple of years as a home run hitter. He was playing in Detroit. Cleveland was a great city at this time. Um, 
Greenberg was the only guy. He was part of an infield that was known, but I just feel like Hal's his glove didn't help him. But I also think just the anonymity of playing not in Boston, New York, or Philly at the time mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, was was a just it's an inevitable consequence. It's just a function of choose your team and choose your fate. Hmm. What about Cleveland fans? How did they accept Trotsky? And who are you know? You mentioned a couple of the other stars on on the team. Who were some of the guys that Hal Trotsky played with that we might not have heard of that were also pretty good and might have been overlooked? Oh gosh, yeah, and I, and I don't know if you count this as an overlooked player, but Mel Harder was one of Hal's closest friends. He was a pitcher for the team. Um, he w- he was ended up pitching for 20 years for Cleveland and was pitching coach for 20 years, filled in as interim manager. Uh, Chuck Finley, the the pitcher, the great pitcher from the more modern times, still looks looked at Harder as his mentor all the way through until Mel passed a few years ago. Um, but they were terrific uh, friends. Mel was always looking out for Hal because he was the more senior, the veteran. He was from Nebraska, one state over. So there's Mel Harder. Bob Feller came up in 1936 as a kid and stuck. And Feller, of course, everyone knows. And Feller was from an hour and a half away in Van Meter. So they had lots of Iowa in in common. But then then you had, like I said, the Joe Vosmick, Rory Hughes at second base. You had uh, you had some interesting catchers, but uh, it was a it was a well-rounded team that should have done better year over year. In 1940, um, and I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but they in Detroit played a down to the wire American League. Uh, New York was finally bounced a little bit, and they played down to the final weekend of the season before Detroit edged Cleveland and went on to the World Series against Cincinnati. But that was the only year that Cleveland was really terribly good. Otherwise, they were a third, fourth, fifth, sixth place team the whole time Hal played with them, which I don't think helped his uh, name recognition uh, in, the, in the media at all. Right. We'll get we'll get to that in just a bit with Oscar Vitt. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, I, I do have to go back because you said Iowa and Bob Feller. How did Hal's parents find their way to Iowa? Why Iowa from where they came from? Well, they uh, they were a function. They they arrived there um, from Peter Trotsky, who was John Hal's Hal's grandfather. Arrived there off the boat from the what's called what was Bokongratz, which is a city in now what's Czechoslovakia, but Bohemia, uh, that part of the Germany Slavic area. And they came over just in search of opportunity, and they got there. Peter was a cobbler for a while. That didn't take finally took up farming and his son, John actually took to farming quite well. And they just stayed there. And then Mary Sipman, uh, Mary Trotsky, uh, Hal's mom, her family had been there for a, an extra generation. And she was a, your basic, uh, good Catholic farm girl and looking for a husband. And she found one in John and they lived happily, literally happily ever after until she uh, passed away in 1940. Hmm. After Hal made it to the majors, he marries his high school sweetheart. And it's so funny because as you go back through all these forgotten heroes that we talk about, so many of them ended up marrying their high school sweetheart. I guess it was just the times were different back then. So he marries his high school sweetheart, Lorraine Glenn, and jumping ahead a little, they had a few children, including Hal Jr., who as you said, also wound up in the majors, but only briefly. Just a little detour here. What can you tell us about Hal Jr.? Well, first, the thing about Lorraine Glenn and the high school sweetheart, it's kind of interesting because her parents were not really in favor of him at all. He It took him making it to all the way to the major leagues before they even allowed their daughter to marry him. <laughs> she was a registered nurse. She was quite, she was educated, one of the few women in the area that had been to graduate from college. Um, 
And she was going there at the time. She was finishing up at the time. And they weren't really crazy about this itinerant baseball player um, marrying their daughter, who they I'm sure they had grander aspirations for. But they had ultimately exceeded. And yes, they ended up with four children. Hal Jr. was born in 1936, um, near the end of Hal's finest baseball season. There's a certain irony there. And he ended up playing. He was a spectacular hitter growing up in Cedar Rapids. He was recruited by Notre Dame, of course, to go to college, but also by he was uh, scattered heavily by several pro professional organizations. He finally signed with Chicago. They sent him to the minor leagues, and he was uh, one day he was taking ball. He was a natural third first baseman with mm-hmm. a powerful mm-hmm. bat, and he was taking uh, ground balls. Um, they, they got into the game. Batter hit one to third. The uh, third baseman threw it over to Hal. Hal reached to his left up the line to take the ball, and he got his arm tangled in the runner's legs mm. and broke it, snapped it. Um, and so in doing so, he realized that he was never – they told him, you're never going to be able to hit again. Oh, but he wow. rehabbed his arm, sticking, doing the whole stick your hand in the bucket of rice thing and squeeze every exercise you could think of. And when he came back, he tried to come back as a hitter, but and they said, it's not going to work. But, boy, we'd sure like to take a look at you as a pitcher because I don't know where you learned to throw, but all of a sudden you can throw really hard. Hmm. And he was a side armor. So he ended up making all the way to the majors, with the White Sox in 1958 for a couple of games. Um, he probably could have gone on further. There were some issues with one of his kids uh, having his wife had a difficult delivery. So he took time away. And then the White Sox had moved on by 1961. So uh, they ultimately didn't release him until 1972. But he was with that team in that organization for quite a while, even if he wasn't playing. Mm-hmm. And then James Trotsky. Uh, he was an airline pilot, Marine Corps pilot. Um, their daughter was a nurse and their other son. Uh, he's actually living out in California right now. He owns his own several businesses. Oh, his wow. son, Nate, owns Trotsky Baseball. And they're kind of a perfect game analog, a scouting service and player development service out there in the Monterey area. Oh, that's cool. So like everybody back then, well, almost everybody, you had to have an off-season job. What, was the, what were the off-seasons like for Hal? He was a farmer and he was by all accounts, a darn good one. He, uh, there were times in fact, in world war II when he was pulling more than his share, more than his quota of bushelage or whatever. I see, I'm not a farmer, so it's hard for me to speak in those terms, <laughs> Neither but, <am> I. <laughs> but, but whatever he was supposed to be producing, he was producing more than that. But his whole, his whole off seasons were built around farm work and basketball. That was, those were the two things he used really to stay in shape. He was, he had no jobs in town, nothing like that. Um, but he was a very, very serious both the growing and the animal tending. Uh, and then again, basketball, that was the, just like Cal Ripken, that's what he would play constantly mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. evenings. So after that first year, Hal slipped a little hitting just 271 with 26 homers. But again, he played every game. His third year, outstanding. I mean, 343, 42 home runs a league-leading 162 RBIs. Again, 45 doubles and nine triples. He was, at least I think so, a spectacular hitter. He also led the AL with 405 total bases. Was Hal Trotsky getting his due? What did the rest of baseball think about Hal? And let's talk a little bit about all-star games. Yeah, so that, that's that four and five still are total bases. I'm glad you brought that up because to me, that's still the one I have trouble wrapping my head around. That's such an extraordinarily high number. Um, but real quickly, but in 1935, like you said, his sophomore slump, his spring training was outstanding, and his season was so 
did such a dramatic fall off. He even tried at one point uh, for a doubleheader. He switched to hitting left-handed for wow. about six at-bats and then batted right-handed for two at-bats. And he did okay. Or, I'm sorry, right-handed for six at-bats and left-handed for two. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. He did so well. And then the next, at the end of the season, he said, I'm not going to, that was gimmicky. I'm not going to do that anymore. So we approached 1936 a little more seriously from this. And the spring training in 36 was more of the same from 35. It was just not very promising until the curtain rose on the 36 season. And he just came out of the gate uh, hitting on all cylinders, if you will. He was in multiple, many, several two homer games right off the bat in April, you know, which is kind of cold and rainy in the mm-hmm, Midwest. Mm-hmm. And he was, he was right on the game the whole time. And in fact, the first half of the season was so everyone thought in Cleveland, the, the scribes, even the Whitey Lewis, Franklin Lewis, the guy that really, you know, he didn't like anybody, but he really, I don't think liked Hal very much. Even he was pretty confident that Trotsky was going to make the uh, 1936 All-Star team. You know, the All-Star game was only three years old, but they'd only started in 30, what, 33. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so it was still a novelty. And, and it was were, still, were there, and it was played was there, twice yeah, a year. I was going to say, there was two of them a year. Right. There, there are many opportunities and even all the writers, literally, um, you could have pulled them all and they would have said, sure, Trotsky's going to make all-star t- at least one of those all-star teams, at least as a backup. But he never did. Um, and he just it didn't affect his play through the rest of 36. But I know, again, it got his attention because he just uh, 162 runs batted in 405 total bases with 40, home, 42 homers. It, it, yeah, it's a lively ball, but those are still incredibly uh, good numbers. Garrick was there was a Garrick esque. Uh, by this time, Fox was basically gone, and Greenberg was hurt. And you would think that this was the year for him to make it, and he still didn't. And it's still it's a mystery to me as to why that ever happened or didn't happen. Was he bitter at all about it? Um, I, in comments he has he made to his family that they have shared with me later, um, including Lorraine um, before she passed away. He was he was frustrated by it. I don't think he honestly, and and this might have been his uh, widow. Uh, waxing a little eloquently. He wasn't ever mad at baseball because of it, but he did. I, I dr- truly do believe that as with an athlete's confidence, he felt like he deserved to go to be selected to one of those teams and play. Um, and the fact that he wasn't was a, was a frustrating, I don't know if it, how much it motivated him, but I know it would, did not make him happy. Well, geez, when way. you hit 343 with 42 home runs, 162 RBIs, and 405 total bases, yeah, I would say that's got to be frustrating. And if he'd have done that today in an era where we're much more aware of, <laughs> yeah. well, we're aware of, of individual performances. Back then, that year, 36, the Indians finished fifth. Right. I mean, they out of eight. And so he was considered. Uh, a good player on a bad team or a not a great team. And so you've got the teams that are finishing ahead of them. Those players in the media's collective mentality, it seems to me, those were the more worthy recipients of the honors of all-star and that kind of thing, mm-hmm. because it was, they were, they linked it much more to team performance. I, I really feel like today, you know, if you had just divorced the player from the team, he, it was extra, like you said, it was, it's almost, it's hard to get your mind around those kinds of numbers with no recognition whatsoever. Um, but I do think it was linked a lot to the perception of team performance and his inability, you know, you played for a losing team, so you must be a not quote unquote loser, but you're not a great player because you're not able to pull your team up. If that makes sense. It's, it's almost inconceivable. I mean, you know, there are guys that win the MVP award for teams that finish in last place. So it totally doesn't make sense. Exactly. Uh, Let me ask you this. I don't know if you know the answer to this or not. At that time, was every team supposed to have at least one representative 
on the all-star team? It is my understanding, and this is an I think, not an I know, but I think, I strongly think that that is not, that was not, that it was not a quota in place at that point. There were multiple games and the selections were made um, sometimes on player availability. Pitchers, some pitchers would be, you know, there were other barnstorming tours going on. They'd have to work their schedules. Even back then in the 30s when there wasn't a whole lot else of offseason work going on. Um, but I don't know that for a fact. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, because I would wonder at this point if he didn't make the team, who on the Indians did? Well, Averill was still playing, and Earl Averill was everything that the uh, overlooked Hal would be the the opposite, the antithesis for Averill. He was they fairly acknowledged, I think. I mean, he was a tremendous outfielder. I think that the public generally understood that and appreciated him. So he was always the Indian until Bob Feller uh until like 1937-38 when Feller was actually established as a starter and then he suddenly became the Indian. So if you ever needed a representative from Cleveland, you'd always had somebody of that mm-hmm. caliber. Mm-hmm. Now, we were talking about the fact that Cleveland was, for lack of a better term, a second division team. And there yes. was something else going on around at this time, too. Many of the players thought the Indians were a team that should have been winning more games, a team that was good enough to win the pennant and play in the World Series. These players also thought that there was one man holding them back, and that was their manager, Oscar Vitt. Can you talk about that? There was basically a player revolt against Vitt. Absolutely. It's one of the, it's one of the most uh, interesting aspects of Trotsky's career was his role in this. Um, from 1930s, if you look back, you've got to go back a little bit to 36, 37. And like you said, it really dissatisfying performance by a team that should have done better. So they fired Steve O'Neill as a manager. And Walter Johnson had been the manager. Walter, the big train, Hall of Fame, great pitcher, had mm-hmm. been fired in 35. Mm-hmm. Steve O'Neill had been hired to replace him. He got fired in 37. They had, The man they hired was a... It was Oscar Vitt, who had been a teammate of Ty Cobbs back in the rough and tumble Tigers of the 19 teens. Um, and he had managed the Newark Bears, which was the Yankees, basically, for for better lack of a better term, the AAA team, right. uh, to uh, a couple of consecutive titles. And it was a team that was so good that people joked, you know, you could roll out the ball. Vitt could fill out the lineup and go home and the team would win. It was extraordinary. I mean, just the great Yankees of the 40s all were on that team. So the Indians, Alva Bradley, the owner, um, and he was kind of a I, – <laughs> I don't want this to sound disparaging because it's not, but he was as an owner. He wasn't a, he didn't grow up in baseball. He grew up in in the financial world. And so uh, Oscar Vitt represented kind of a shiny object to him. Uh, and so he was attracted to Vitt's record, his pedigree, his Yankee association. He hired him as manager. Vitt shows up um, and he's supposed to be the manager that brings this, makes this uh, concoction all come together and become stew. Um, and he does, so, but he does so with methods that were literally right out of, his Detroit Tiger playbook from 30 years earlier. Hmm. Uh, he was he was draconian manager. He was unafraid to bash players in public, uh, in private. He was a really smart baseball guy, extremely credible. He knew knew the game very well, but he was terrible with people. 
Hmm. He would play favorites. He would put guys in the doghouse, make it public. He would curry favor with the try to curry favor with the press by giving him um, kind of smart aleck asides about certain players so that they could put a little line in their paper the next day because there were three or four papers competing in Cleveland at the same time. Um, and that was the bit. And so as good as he was, he was so vexing because he was a terrific manager and then just such a poor leader. By 1940, Hal has been named captain. They've only had a couple of captains in Indian history, but they mm-hmm. named Hal captain in 38 um, as kind of the, the spiritual and physical leader of the club. But by 19, the summer of 1940, Vitt's methods, he's criticizing Feller in the press. He's be taking out, he's criticizing Harder on the mound. He's all sorts of things are happening where the players are literally talking about Roy Weatherly tried to organize a thing where he was able to accidentally bump into him in the locker room and start a fist fight. That was his plan. <laughs> and the players pulled him back and said, no, we can't do that. But they did finally get together on a train after a special, an especially bad series, I believe it was in Boston coming back to Cleveland saying, look, we've got to go to the owner. We've got to demand that this guy get fired because otherwise we, this is a great team. And this was the 1940 innings and they were a very good team. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. We can win this whole thing, but it's the manager that's holding us down, but it's Oscar Vitt who had Bradley had hired. So they go, and in June, they get back from the trip, um, and there's 10 of them are supposed to go to Bradley's office with a proclamation si- or a declaration signed by all but two of the players. Uh, Boudreaux didn't sign it, and Weatherly didn't sign it because he just wanted to fight the guy. Um, and Boudreaux, they said, you're, you're too young. We don't want to taint you with water because this is right, going to stick right, to us. Right. Um, and so ha- they were they were set to go, and then literally the train pulls in the station how gets a phone call saying, Hey, your mom has just passed away in Iowa. Oh. And so he turns right around and they say, go, go, go. We'll take care of this. You go be with your family. And so he's off to Iowa. The T rest of the, the representatives led by harder and feller and several others go into owner Albert Bradley's office and demand Vitz uh, ouster. And, and Bradley says, well, I'll think about it. And the first thing he does is picks basically picks up the phone and calls Gordon Kobeldick of the Cleveland plane dealer and says, the players are mutinying and here's their declaration. And, and it spread like wildfire throughout the league. They were, they were the crybaby Indians in the press. They were teams would show. They showed up in Detroit and they were assaulted with little baby pacifiers. Some of the fans <laughs> wore big oversized diapers and baby caps, um, and and worse, obviously beer bottles and that kind of thing. Whatever bottles they had in the stands, I know that there was some broken glass in one of the games. Um, and it, they never really lived that down. They were all they were the crybaby Indians for there on after. Even though by the end of the year. When Alva Bradley does fire Vitt, and it turns out he says, and two years later he says, "Yeah, I looked at all his charges; they were all pretty much true." Um, they, they, the players are the ones that bore the responsibility, and because Hal was the captain, he's always been labeled as the uh, the chief cry, the crybaby in chief, if you will. And yes, he was a, certainly a clubhouse leader, but he physically wasn't at that meeting, and he never had an opportunity to defend himself um, because he just wasn't there. Many people for years assumed that he was. Do you think if he was there, the result might have been different? I don't know. You see, this the crybaby incident, as as you talk about <laughs> underappreciated, underknown uh, sports heroes, that's one of those incidents in baseball that unless you're from Cleveland of a certain era, not many people are aware of it. It was a, a genuine mutiny. Um, I do think that whatever's been told by players down the line and by any part, any, any of the parties down the line has had some revisionist softening of it. So it's hard for me to say. I think Hal was pretty convinced that that Vitt needed to go, but he also had said um, to his wife that he wasn't. He really was conflicted about the idea of seeking his ouster. They'd rather um, kind of move Luke Sewell 
into who's the, the they're basically the bench coach, if you will, mm-hmm. kind of move him into the position responsibility and ease Vit out rather than make something so dramatic as we want the owner to fire the manager because we're the players and we think that's what we need to do. Mm-hmm. But I, but to answer your question, I, I don't know that he would have made a difference. I don't know. What ultimately led to Vit's firing? Um, I think the well, basically, there were certain writers that agreed with a lot of what the players said. And so in the press, the people, the public was being told, yeah, you know, the players aren't that far off on many of these things. It's not manly behavior, if you will, for the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Albert Bradley, by the time, by the end of the season, Cleveland played Detroit in a three-game series and did not make the World Series, uh, didn't win the American League flag. So it was kind of an easy step to say, we can get rid of this toxicity. We've got a, a reason because we didn't win the World Series. And we'll just kind of make this transition now and kind of ease it out. He went off to the PCL, Pacific Coast League, managed Portland for a year. And then they fired him because <laughs> of the same reason, because <laughs> he was a mili- kind of a drill sergeant kind of manager, even at a time when toughness was appreciated and and those kinds of things. Um, but I think I think Bradley took advantage of the opportunity to say, look, I just want to get this all behind me. Um, we didn't win the World Series, so I've got a reason. Right. So when you look back revisionist history when you look back can you say with any sort of conviction i'm not trying to put you on the spot that the main reason the indians couldn't climb to the top was because of oscar vitt or was there an ingredient with the team that was missing was there just something missing that prevented the indians from ever making it to with the exception of 1940 that first division and and winning the pennant. It is so interesting that you bring that up because I have spent many, you know, we're, we're talking 60, 70 years ago, and I've still spent way too many mental calories thinking about exactly <laughs> that. Um, because I do think I, what I've come down to, and my, this is my conclusion, and a lot of this is I think, not I know, because I don't know if the real answer can ever be known. It's It's a little hypothetical. But I think that there were two things on the Indians. One, was that they sought a scapegoat because they they were in first place much of the year and fighting and playing well. But the vid thing provided them, it was a distraction. And mm-hmm. a distraction isn't necessarily a bad thing if you don't let it be. I don't know if mentally, because they had never been in this position of really challenging for a pennant, I don't know if that was starting to eat away at them. When they'd go on three or four game skids, which they did a couple of times in the first half, and Vit was in their face, in the press, people were talking – I think that rankled some because they're still a fairly young team. I mean, mm-hmm. Hal was only 29 years old at this point, um, 28 years old. So it's still a young team, and they don't know how to deal with that. And then Feller, who would have been – Feller and Trotsky were the two that could have been the leaders. Trotsky, by this point, was under the beginning phases of his really debilitating uh, – migraine headaches where he was missing games and and sometimes multiple games in a row because he just couldn't answer the bell and feller was still gosh he was 21 years old at this time he threw an opening day no hitter in 1940 you'd think there's your leader except he's literally not much more than a kid Mm -hmm. in terms Mm -hmm. of these things so i don't think they had they had gotten rid of earl whitehill this is where i think that they got rid of earl whitehill in the in 39 or 38 i believe and he became a coach but a guy like that an old tough guy who could have kind of gone in the locker room behind closed doors and provided a focus for the players that didn't involve the manager that be the, be the target, be that guy. And they didn't have that. Hmm. And I really think that's what killed him. I think it was a a lot. There were several things combined, but really it was a softness mentally and a willingness to blame Vit 
who probably deserved a lot of the blame because it's attraction, but mm-hmm. I don't know if he was the reason you can't say that they lost uh, two out of three or that key game to Detroit um, in 19, late 1940 because of Oscar Vitt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So Hal continues along year after year, putting up big numbers, and then he starts suffering from, as you just mentioned, these severe migraines. Where did these suddenly come from, and how debilitating were they? Well, it's interesting because back – remember in 1936, he had been this big power guy in 37, and then they had hired Vitt, and Vitt had said, look, I don't want power. I want average out of you. And so he actually changed his entire approach, started going the opposite way. His batting average went up back over 300. Um, His RBI stayed up. And then in 1940, because he's using this non-power, non-brute force approach – these migraines start kicking in and he doesn't know where they're coming from, but they're to the point where he's literally seeing stars. If you're a migraine sufferer, you know exactly what I'm talking about, where you just physically can't move. You can't, it hurts to move your head. You can't see. He said at one point he was standing on first base, taking a throw from the pitcher and the ball looked like a uh, big batch of feathers. Hmm. It was just this big diffused amorphous. So you can't hit that because you can't see it. You can't catch it because you can't see it. Um, and then he could, the pain was such that he couldn't move. And he went through those basically 40, 41. It wasn't until uh, probably about 1943 that they determined uh, after many, many uh, tests, he went through the full army World War II examination. They made him a 4F because of the, of the migraines. It wasn't until down the road, 43, that they figured out it was a, a lactose intolerance, basically, if you will. I know that's simplifying it, but basically it was a dairy issue that was giving him these. So he's a dairy farmer from Iowa. I was going to say the iron. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, it's brutal. It's brutal. The thing that he loves the most is milk and cheese and ice cream. And that's what's getting in the way of his life professionally. Interesting. Shortening his career significantly. Yeah, I mean, they got so bad that after playing in 89 games in 1941, a year in which he still hit 294, he called it quits. Is Did he give up too quickly? Why call it quits at, at this point when he was just 28 years old? Well, that year, in fact, the reason he actually the he the migraines were obviously, and he had missed or he missed that was the year he finally missed a road trip, a full road trip. But he also broke his thumb, and so he was going to lose those days, even with clear vision and smooth sailing. He was going to lose the rest of that season. Mm-hmm. But the migraines had made it to the point where he was not a, he was merely a shadow. Hey, you're right; he played well enough, but he wasn't playing up to the standards of a 28 year old in the prime of his career with a reputation like a Hal Trotsky. Um, at the same time, again, Franklin Lewis, um, whose nickname was Whitey, Whitey Lewis, uh, writing for the Cleveland News, made him the scapegoat for everything. Ever since the the Crybaby Rebellion, um, Lewis had, had kind of tagged Trotsky with that. And so every day, Hal, Lorraine, his wife, uh, the people back in Iowa, they're getting up or on the weekends reading the newspaper, and the victim, the guy that's causing all of Cleveland's angst and malaise is Trotsky, even wow. though that's not the case. And so, again, he's only 28 at this time, and he's he's not – he doesn't want to carry the weight of the world on his shoulders. And he mm-hmm. really – psychologically, he was devastated. And then that December, um, you know, Pearl Harbor sure, happened. Sure, sure. And so, and then the whole, his whole world changed for the Yeah, yeah. So this is where, at least for me, the story gets a little convoluted because he wasn't done. He goes home, if I follow this correctly, he goes home to his farm and hopes that it will be drafted to fight in the war, but he gets 4F'd. 
He's out of baseball for two full years. Then he starts feeling better and winds up back in the majors with the White Sox. Then he takes a year off. Then he goes back to the White Sox again. Talk about that period of his life. What kind of player he was at that point and why he finally called it quits when he was just 33. And then another question on top of that, why was he 4F? Start, yeah, because okay, so start, excuse me, after the thumb in 41, he went home and then Pearl Harbor happened. And he sought, he actually didn't, didn't want to wait to be drafted. He went down to enlist. They gave him the physical, made him 4F. He appealed that twice. He was, he truly didn't believe that he was 4F. He, his basic, his theory was, I'm a major league ball player. If I can't play baseball, at least I can go off and and do my part. Because he was pretty serious about that. Um, and they said, and once at one point, one of the draft boards, the doctor said, okay, we'll let you go on this. There was a provision. And then they got to the big army medical review and they said, no, 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 you're still 4F. You're not going anywhere. And that was because so, of the migraines? That was because of the migraines. Okay. This is still 42. Um, and, and so he was under Delano had issued this worker fight dick. And basically you're either going to work in a military or war effort support job like farming in his case, or you're going to go fight. And so it was easy for him to go back to the farm or work in a man of refrigeration building uh, those kinds of th- uh, machines for the military. But he wasn't able to play baseball. Lorraine said when I talked to her the first first time back in, I guess, 98, she remembered vividly him sitting, listening to ball games on the radio. And we're talking the replacement players. These are a lot of the guys that he didn't even really know because they the, the players he knew, a lot of them had gone off to fight. And he would still listen to the games and he would have tears coming out of his eyes because he wanted to play so desperately. Oh, wow. Um, and it was, And she said it was really galvanizing for her because she'd never seen this big, strong, at this point, you know, 29-year-old man, 30-year-old man sitting there listening to a ball game, feeling not sorry for himself so much as just watching his opportunity go away. And he's not able to go fight, so he feels ineffective there. So 1943, the doctors finally figure out, okay, well, maybe we'll try this protocol. So he starts on this migraine reduction protocol, and it seems to start taking effect. I think that they were starting to triangulate on the the lactose problem, the dairy problem. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And by 19, the end of 1943, uh, the draft, the, the requirement had gone down the army had not been willing to change his mind but jimmy dykes and the white Sox said hey uh wartime players if you're if you're working you can still do your work in the off season and meet your obligation but we'd love to have you come play for us because you know it's wartime baseball the play is very good and you could really help us even in massive comiskey park so they signed him as a first baseman and he went off uh and he had i think he led the team in homers that year it was only 10 in 1944 but he hit 10 homers. He played well for the White Sox. They liked him. But then the migraines, the, the therapy that he was on, it hadn't quite really integrated in his body. And he started he's, at 1945. The war ends. He says, I'm or is getting ready to end, he thinks. Um, he didn't know, of course, how it would end, but he felt like that was winding down. I'm just going to go back and farm because this isn't working out for me. I don't mm-hmm. want oh, these players are going to come back. I'm going to lose my job anyway. I have too much pride to be cut from a team. I'll just leave ahead of time. And so in 1945, he sits out and then 46, they come back and the players are all back and all of his friends are back playing. And Jimmy Dykes again comes and says, look, we'll pay you more to come back and play. And so he came back in 46 and he was just basically a shell. He had, you know, he looked played just like a player who had been really good and took effectively five years off with the exception of 44. Mm -hmm. Uh, Really, he had the game had passed him by. And at mm-hmm. that point, he hung him up and said, I just I can't do this anymore. I've got a family, family obligations. Um, 
I want to raise my kids, stay home and farm. And, and the White Sox were happy to hire him as a scout. But in 1946, at, at a relatively young age, uh, for a variety of reasons, he finally said, I, you know, it was a career that could basically it was a career that could have been and never was yeah. after about year three. Wow. Wow. After his playing days were over, what kind of life did he live? Was he happy? Was he disappointed with the way things turned out? What was life like for Hal Trotsky? Hal, by all accounts, turned this into a very positive thing. He was he was very quick to trade on his name. And he could open doors for him. He was an agricultural real estate salesman in uh, eastern Iowa. He sold every time for a while there, every time he sold a big farm or something like that, he'd give the purchaser a uh, piece of like a set of spikes or a bat or a ball <laughs> or a glove that he had played with and said, here's a game used piece as this kind of like this perk. So he was scouting for the White Sox. He was coaching various amateur teams um, in the late 40s. And he was uh, working as an agriculture farmer or salesman. And he was doing a little bit of farming on the side. He finally got out of farming after the fifth in the 50s mm-hmm. and just took up full time agricultural sales. But he was he was Everyone said, everyone of his family. Now, they didn't know him necessarily in the in the mid-30s, but everyone said that once he decided to quit baseball, he got instantly, his mood improved, his demeanor, disposition, whatever. Hmm. Um, he was a very happy guy in retirement. I feel like he thinks it was the right choice. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, he didn't live a very long life, at least I don't think it's a long life. He no. died when he was just 66. Yeah. Was he was it from the migraines? I mean, I, I, what what led to his passing um, in the again through the 50s and 60s and most of the 70s? He lived the life of a retired baseball guy. After he finally retired from agricultural sales, um, he did a little scouting. He would go to clinics. um do things like that. But mostly he was an around the house kind of guy. He and Lorraine had a wonderful life and they were very active in their, in the the church. Um, they were very devout what they did. They, they gave a lot of money of what they had to it. And they spent a lot of time volunteering in the late 1970s. He started to have uh, manifest heart problems and his father, his grandfather, no one in that family, no, the males in that family, his brother had died very young um, compared to him. None of them had lived past the age of 70, really. I think John had lived into his early 70s, his father. Um, so Hal, in 1978, he has a heart attack, mm. uh, and his wife puts him on a cane. They're living in a – by this time, they've sold their home, they sold the farm, and living in an apartment in Cedar Rapids. So he has minimal uh, moving. He has to basically back to and from the car. He's still getting around. He's still active, but his heart is obviously starting to fail. Mm-hmm. And then in 1979 – June 18th, he is. Uh, he and Lorraine have just finished dinner. They're getting putting the dishes in the in the sink. She's getting ready to wash. She hears a thump in the other room. She goes out to lo- literally around the door from the kitchen to the living room, and he's lying on the floor. And he had already passed by this time. He oh, basically geez. died as he hit the floor. Massive coronary infarction, uh, myocardial infarction, heart attack, and he was gone. It was, um, it, it was a blessing in that he didn't suffer. But you were right; he was very, very young in a relative sense today, at least, when he sure, passed. Sure. For his career, which spanned 11 years or 11 seasons, Hal Trotsky hit 302. I think he was one of the first. Like He was like the 17th player to amass more than 200 home runs. He had an OPS of 892, and yet barely anyone remembers him. I gotta ask again. 
How is this possible? And what, if anything, have the Indians done to honor Hal Trotsky? Uh, yeah, is it the seventh, uh, when he was the 17th American leader to hit or 17th player to hit the 200 home runs, he got a nice certificate. In fact, Lorraine still had his wife still had that when I interviewed her and they sent that out and it was a big deal to hit 200 home runs back in the, in that era. Cause they're coming out of the dead ball era. He was a incredibly accomplished hitter, um, for a team that was not great, but it wasn't, it wasn't the St. Louis Browns. They weren't bottom feeders for, mm-hmm, for most mm-hmm. of the time. Um, it is just, it's. Again, all I can just do is ascribe it to the competition that he played with literally not quite Mount Rushmore figures in baseball. But if if you had a first baseman Mount Rushmore, uh, Fox, Garrig, and Greenberg would be three of them in serious contention. And it's just impossible. There's not enough oxygen for all of them to breathe um, reputation-wise. And so he was the odd man out, in my opinion, because his numbers, his career, especially his first half of his career, he certainly merited a lot more attention than he ever got. And the Indians – um, they had, he's in their, in their Memorial garden. He's got definitely got a plaque as part of their quote unquote hall of fame. His number hasn't been retired. Number seven. That is something that, uh, I've looked at, um, trying to mobilize some support for that. And maybe mm-hmm. at some point we will, I will, uh, when we get close to the centennial, because I do think, um, his contributions still hold up on the Indians all time list quite nicely. If you go back and read the Indians media guy for many years, there's a lot of Trotsky near the top of all the offensive category, most of the offensive categories, mm-hmm. except for the speed ones. Um, but Bob DiBiasio, the Indians uh, director of media, he's a uh, very receptive. He always is, is anytime you listen to him speak about those Indians, Trotsky's name will usually come up along with Harder and Feller and Averill. Um, he's really good about keeping that name out there when he speaks, but for the most part, I don't think a lot of people outside of Iowa and Ohio are um, really aware of who he was or what he did. Well, I certainly hope this podcast uh, helps bring his name back into the picture. In the end, how should we remember Hal Trotsky? Hal Trotsky, I believe, and I'm not speaking for him because he's dead, but I believe he would want to be remembered as a good man first and a, uh, a good baseball player second, that he was very proud of his life as writ large. He adored, he treasured some of his years in baseball, but some of them were very hard. He knows that he was as good as his best years would play with the best years of any player that ever played. Um, and he wouldn't trade. I know he's told his wife many times, I wouldn't trade a second of it, even at the very end. But he said this later in life. He was a great, he was a terrific player for a team that didn't do very well back in the 1930s. Um, and that's, I think, the best epitaph you can give him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Bill, thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. You wrote a book about how. Tell our fans how they can get a hold of the book on how. Thank you for the plug. Um, seriously, no, it's uh, I, it's Hal Trasky, a baseball biography, and it's published by McFarland Company, which is a publishing house in North Carolina, um, and they have a terrific baseball line. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anywhere that you'd normally go to find books uh in, in worldwide, uh, the Hal Trotsky book is there. Let me ask you this. I, I, what surprised in your research about Hal Trotsky, what surprised you more than anything? Um, honestly, honestly, and this is after I, I, again, I started this project in 1994 and I only came to fruition in 17. So that's many, many, uh, years of looking at this. The subject of this podcast is what astonished me, uh, why he was so anon- why he remained so anonymous, why I had to dig and, and sift through all these records to put together uh, a life story of a guy that I would consider 
based on his numbers and his contributions to the team, the Indians uh, fairly significant and to the American League and the, and the regard in which he was held by other players, his peers at the time. And yet his his anonymity is real. It is he's not an invisible man, but he's he's pretty translucent. <laughs> and that's the thing that's, that's the thing that's really astonished me the whole way through is that how hard it is to find stuff to put together on him. And that's why that's honestly the reason I went through and finished the book because it needed to be put down before I die so that uh, <laughs> if somebody down the road's interested, at least it's there in one place. Well, it's a terrific read, and I encourage anyone uh, who wants to learn more about Hal Trotsky to pick it up, especially Cleveland Indian fans. Bill, once again, thank you for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. It's been terrific. Thank you. This has been wonderful. I've really appreciated this conversation we've had. Terrific. Thank you. You know, it's unfortunate when a career is cut short. You never know just how good someone could have been. Many times on Sports Forgotten Heroes, I have mentioned my opinion on whether or not someone should be in the Hall of Fame. Now, I'm not here to tell you that Hal Trotsky should be in the Hall, especially when you consider his last few years were so tough. But he does have better stats than some inductees. For his career, Hal Trotsky hit 228 home runs and had 1,012 RBI. He also had a career batting average of 302. If you take his numbers and spread them out over 162 games, his career 162 game average, according to baseball reference, is 27 home runs a season, 122 RBI a season, and a yearly batting average of 302. His 405 total bases in 1936 is also an incredible number. And while we can debate whether or not he should be in the Hall, one thing is for sure. The fact that he was never an All-Star is a severe injustice, and the fact that he never got to display his talents for a first division team in a big city especially at a time when TV was a non-factor, is also a shame. But there is no doubt that Hal Trotsky was one of baseball's most feared sluggers of his time, and that was during a period when the likes of Gehrig, Fox, and Greenberg were also striking fear into opposing pitchers. Once again, I'd like to thank Bill Johnson for spending some time with us. His book, Hal Trotsky, A Baseball Biography, is terrific, and I encourage everyone listening to grab a copy, and you can do so at Amazon.com. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to talk about the career of another overlooked slugger, a guy who thought no one would remember him after his playing days were over, Ken Williams of the St. Louis Browns. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.